Welcome to the I'm a Health Visitor podcast. We want to help health visitors stay up to date, so we're here to give evidence-based information and insight into relevant practice issues. We're currently supported by the CPHVA Education Development Trust, McQueen Bursary. Hi there, it's Jenny here. Hello, it's Amy. And um, today we are talking through, so Amy, um, has you know, I tied a rope around her belly and sent her <laughs> off on a deep dive oh God. on the end of a Not piece of deep. rope into, into well, <laughs> pretty deep. <laughs> into the child cohort study yeah um which is really exciting i mean craps this covers so much it's massive yeah i um, mean well i was gonna say i'm rather imagining that any students um at the moment are probably finding this popping up in so many things that they're doing mm. um because my god it just is immense yeah for sure um, and it, and it's one of those things which I think when I, I think I, va- I vaguely remember hearing about it maybe eight, nine years ago. Yeah. And it being a little bit on the woo-woo side. Of yes. Yeah, or, you know, yeah. Appearing to be on the woo-woo side. And uh, it, it's funny, isn't it, how things change so quickly and how mm-hmm. you suddenly go from things seeming to be a bit woo-woo to being absolutely... Proper science. Proper science. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the word you're uh, we're talking about that's that was a bit woo woo and is now um, in very much in proper science is microbiome, isn't it? Oh God, yes. Yeah, sorry. No, it <laughs> did was I good. Did all that without saying microbiome? You did, but <laughs> I thought it was better because it's like a mysterious leading. Mm. If we could have planned it that way, it was like a guessing game. The people at home are going. Oh, but what yeah. is it that's mysterious? What, Except what it won't be talking? mysterious because I'm pretty sure it'll probably be in the title of the podcast anyway. But and yes, actually, actually no, knowing our, knowing our, I was going to say, knowing our listenership as well, it's probably uh, rather than being at home, we should say uh, while in the car between visits. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> I think there's a fair few people that listen to us while they're walking the dog or washing up. I yeah. quite like imagining what you're doing while you're listening to us. It's a nice little <laughs> going about your business. It's lovely. Yeah, I must say, I did. I it's bad. I did nearly have one of our podcasts come on in the car the other day when the kids were in the car, <laughs> and uh, it's that daft thing where instead of being like, "Oh, and here I am," aren't you proud of me, guys? It was more of a, "Oh no, no, you don't want to hear that." Oh no, I can hear myself. <laughs> I know. I hate listening. So back it, to it brings me joy that other people, when they hear me in their car, are quite happy to hear me. I know. It always yeah. Absolutely. And when you hear your own voice, you're always like, do I really sound like that? Well, they say that I may keep it as a threat. If I hear we don't talk about Bruno one more time (laughs) from my children. (laughs) For me, it's Paddington Bear at the moment, which I have to be honest, I'll take because Stephen Fry reads it. So I'm on board with Stephen Fry being in my life. Yeah, no, you see, I think (laughs) if, if the charts were dependent on how many times you have sung a song yourself, then oh, we don't know about Bruno would be there for another few weeks. I mean, maybe by the time this comes out, it will have had its different. moment and passed. But, oh, my God, it's at number one in the proper charts at the moment. Is it? I'm yes. clueless. I don't, know. I don't ever know any no, of these things. It's, it's, from, it's from a new Disney film called Enchanto, which is a very oh, good film. Yes. I've not seen it, but um, I've heard yeah, about it. I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit old school, but I mean, to me, it's no let it go. Anyway, we're completely sidetracked. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> ah, back to the Let's microbiome. Let's get back to the microbiome chat. That we didn't really even expecting. start the microbiome. We sort of went, oh, it was used to be a bit woo-woo, but now it's proper science. And then we diverged into Disney. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. Right, we're back now. <laughs> Microbes and the microbiome. So what is a microbiome? Jenny. So, right, so my understanding of it is that we all naturally on our skin and in our bowels and things have bugs and everything growing. Yeah. Can you tell I'm doing my I'm gonna guesstimate it and then you can correct me in a moment. I'm really enjoying it. It's excellent and so far. Roughly. So, you know, when um Babies, well, if babies born vaginally because they come out through the birth canal, they're going to pick up on some of the bugs from your birth canal. 
And these yeah. then are absorbed sort of through the nose and mouth and then populate baby's bowel as yes. well. And then over time, baby skin develops particular fauna and bugs and things. Yeah. And these all have some degree of protective elements. Yeah. So fauna. basically, yeah, that's amazing. Great work. Hey! So yeah, we didn't need the child study. It should have just come to you. Um, so basically... <laughs> Yeah, what would I then do? What, lick your child and go, yes, they have a healthy uh, flora and fauna on their skin. <laughs> no, no, you need the child study. I cannot lick, what is it, three and a half thousand children. That's just, no, that's beyond. No, I don't I, think I anyone's to, licking them. I just to be to I'm not sure why licking is involved. <laughs> well, I know, I, I don't know why I went there, actually. I'm I enjoyed still, it. I'm glad you did. You know what? I think it's it's still a jokey thing that me and my children do often. You know, do the whole thing where, yeah, you know, oh, I'll give you a kiss, good night, okay, and then cheeky lick on the cheek instead. <laughs> oh, that's and adorable. I will still sniff their heads. Which <sighs> when I do you stop sniffing children? They're very sniffable. No, they are even even at eleven and eight. I still like a good sniff. That's good to know. Their head. I'm happy so that that doesn't easy. go away. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. No. So anyway, again, back to my... Oh, that was a bit microbiome or yeast and all of that. Anyway, so mm. the definition of a microbiome is a community of microorganisms living in a defined environment. So, for example, we have a human microbiome, which is the word we give to the microorganisms that populate the human body. So you're totally right on the skin. Uh, majority in the gut so the child study for those of you who haven't come across it yet stands for the canadian healthy infant longitudinal development study so it's a cohort study and those of you who know your research methods will know that that means they follow a large group of um participants so in this case it's children um and they follow them for a long period of time over a period of years um, and then they're able to make statements about um, normal patterns of behaviour, epidemiology, population level data. Um, it's really, really useful for giving us big, big, big numbers and, and telling us what's kind of normal. You know, I've only, I've only just realised that the child study and that, that is, it stands for Canadian Health yes. Infant, da, da, da. I mean, how handy was it that it was Canada that did this? Wasn't it? <laughs> Wasn't it? It's very catchy. You often see those, like, um, I've forgotten what they're called, when they have words that's the letters that stand... Acronyms? Acron- that's it. You often see those acronyms, and they're, like, you know, the most shoehorned acronym in the world, and it says skin, but it's <laughs> actually, like... <laughs> There's going to be one coming up that's a bit more shoehorned, isn't there? <laughs> I don't know, is there? Oh, good. Okay. Yeah, a little bit. Okay. It, it, it will, funnily enough, tie back in with the licking, but It'll we'll get there clear. shortly, otherwise we're not going to get there. Right, okay. So, um, they followed 3,500 children who were born between 2009 and 2012. Majority were in 2011, but it was sort of like a bell curve across that period and they followed them from pregnancy right through to school age so this is really interesting data they described it as a diverse cohort so by that um when i actually looked at the baseline demographics so there's a paper it was in the bmj that publishes that the sorry that released the demographics of the cohort and 25% of the cohort had at least one non-Caucasian parent. Okay. Okay. And then 72% of the women and 63% of the men had a college or university level education. So I don't know what that's like in terms of ethnicity. Um, It doesn't strike me as massively diverse, but then I don't know what the population (coughs) numbers are in Canada to compare that with. So perhaps they have lower levels of diversity than we do. Yeah, it's a catch-all of 25% having at least one non-Caucasian yeah. parent. Yeah. That's kind of... I'd say... I'd say describing um, it as a diverse cohort is a big statement to make on the basis of what I've seen. However, it's probably better than a lot of cohort studies. So I was going to say, comparable to others, it's yeah, probably really um, good. I felt like those numbers of, of people who had a college or university level, level of education was quite high. Yeah. Um. 
but, but again is that, that something that's consistent with research um you mean is it better than other papers you mean well it's I the problem everyone always it's better has or research. consistent I, yeah i mean i think it's that interesting isn't it where it's like the circles people moving and where they where where are they going to recruit their populations for their cohorts from yeah and um who's more likely to re- be able to access the information read the information mm. and sort of actually properly consent to mm. it um but yeah it's, it's um, hard yeah and that is always hard to recruit people who have a lower level of education because people who are typically interested in being involved with research typically have a higher level of education in general. So it's yeah. quite hard. That is a, a real difficult thing to recruit for. Um, mm. We also don't have any data on the socioeconomic status of the um, cohort or not in the paper that I looked at. I mean, there's a ton of, I'll come to, but there's a ton of publications about this. So it may be out there somewhere, but I couldn't find it obviously reported. And I think that is a shame because some of that might be relevant to the outcomes they're looking at in terms of the microbiome, you know, home environment, um, poverty yeah. might play a factor there. Um, yeah. They're also, I've got no idea what happened to the folks that don't identify as either a mother or a father because they're the only two columns in the research <laughs> data reporting. So, in a cohort okay. of 3,500 children, they definitely will have had some parents there that identify as something other than mother or father, hopefully. Um, you'd have thought they would. You'd, you'd but hope, anyway. but again, maybe they are. Maybe not there. I mean, I. I, don't, I suppose back in, well, you think it is going back 2009, yeah, but 12, 13 years ago. Maybe. Um, and it's that thing with, you know, the non-binariness. It could be that there were families in that cohort who identify as, you know, two mothers, two fathers, but they might still have identified as mothers and fathers rather yeah, than... Yeah, possibly. Yeah, rather than between. a different gender. So, yeah, I mean, it's still... It is that thing where it's still, you know, as we've talked about previously, it's still a very new um, sort of area that is mm. rapidly learning. I mean, it's like, as you know, when you sort of you know, look back on anything and, you know, so many things from even five years ago, mm. you'd look back on now and cringe at because they were just so out of touch as to where we are now. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, so basically, that's the that's the diversity, that's the sample, um, and the sample yeah. is important with a cohort study because it spawns an awful lot of research. So, um, so far, the study, this one study, has generated ninety five peer reviewed publications. Um, wow. 76 of which directly report child data, three baseline papers describing the study. And then they've got 14 master's and PhD theses and 265 nice. child-related abstracts have been submitted for presentation at national or international scientific conferences. So the body of research from this study is vast, is what I would say. Yeah. And to be yeah. clear, for anyone listening... I'm not trying to cover all of that, okay? <laughs> Are you not? No, please don't write in and say you didn't talk about <laughs> this paper, and I think that's really important because I can't possibly even read that amount of data. No. no. Um, what but I'm trying I'm to give guessing, you is the headlines, basically. What I'm guessing as well is that um, for those listeners who are who are students at the moment mm. hello guys i know you're out there <laughs> i hope it's all going okay um <laughs> hang on i'm that. guessing yeah i'm guessing that a lot it wouldn't be much effort for most of their essays and most of their reading around topics to include something from this study um and so yeah it might be it, it might be you've got a paper that you have yeah. used in a in um some research that has uh is based upon the child study yeah look out for it yeah. it might be as i remember doing several times when um i was uh doing my <laughs> doing my skipping um where you uh you kind of you're looking out for papers on slightly obscure topics yeah and you think oh this is amazing i've got like three papers 
And then when you read them all, you realise that they're all based on the same research. Yeah, yeah. Well, these big studies so, you know, it does do happen. It can produce happen. a lot of data from them. because, And yeah. I mean, they cost a huge amount of money to do, and often that's public money. So um, they should yeah. produce a lot of data, you know. Um, so anyway, so I'm not trying to cover it all. And if there's something that particularly interests you, there will be a lot, a lot more detail than I'm able to give you on this episode but if yeah. i'm able to give you the headlines i'll be happy with that so essentially yeah no they're looking at linking the microbiome and this is one of the earliest one of the first studies that links the microbiome to asthma allergies obesity and other diseases in a cohort study way okay wow. so yeah. um They've made five major headlines from their research of learning points that we can take. The first one is that the mode of birth impacts the gut microbiome. So a C-section has a different microbiome than a vaginal birth. And um, that that's what you mentioned. Sense completely, yeah. 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 Um, and because it's that interesting where I know, and it, I've not heard anything about it in ages, but there was this thing going around seeding, wasn't there? Yeah. Yeah. And sort of swabbing from vagina to babies around baby's face and things after birth to yeah. almost avoid them not or, or to help ensure they don't miss out on that yeah. microbiome and things. I don't know whether um, I don't know what the data is on that in terms of the evidence base on it. There was an emerging practice of it in clinical practice and I don't know whether we have research data to back up that it is effective. Um and yeah. that's something that you would have to look into if you were interested in that. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily follow that because the mode of birth impacts the gut microbiome, if you develop this method of seeding, that that will mitigate that or not. I don't know. Yeah. So that's that's a question. I mean, it, yeah, I but, think I think yeah. given the, the potential of the amount of time the baby spends going through the birth canal in a in a typical in a normal vaginal birth. Yeah. Um I mean, I wonder if there's any difference if they're born vaginally, but with instruments with like forceps. It's a things. really interesting question. I don't know. Because I wonder if that would stop them then from having as much contact as I they I bet they have, have looked at that otherwise. because they did measure um, characteristics of the birth. I'm sure they did. Beyond just whether yeah. it was a C-section or vaginal, I'm sure they yeah. looked at um intervention as well so that probably is in there if you wanted to dig into the research anyone um yeah so that's the first headline um the second headline is that antibiotics in labor really impact your um microbiome and that's amazing i can i can understand how antibiotics maybe in the weeks leading up to birth having a full course of antibiotics mm. would impact but the fact that one, even like, you know, one dose, and I know in labour it's normally given intravenously, so it is in the blood rapidly. Yeah. But to think that can have such a sudden, quick impact. I know. Or, I mean, I'm guessing is the, the potential, especially with it going straight into blood, whether some does pass through to baby and whether baby then has this dose of antibiotics on board already as well. I mean... I don't know what the mechanism really is. interesting. But... The actual no. detail of oh, that. Oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm not, I'm not expecting you to know all the answers. No, no, I know you're not. But it's a really interesting question. It's a really good point of, like, how that would actually have happened. And like you say, the, the speed of it happening. But what they found yeah. was that antibiotics at delivery, um, in during delivery, changed the infant gut microbiota. And that this change, you're going to be very interested in this, Jen, this change was oh, mitigated yeah, yeah. by breastfeeding. So, at three months of age, infants who were born to women who received antibiotics during delivery had a significant alteration in their microbiome, including a lower abundance of, here we go, bacterioid AC and a higher abundance of clostridiales compared to infants whose mothers didn't receive antibiotics. These differences persisted at 12 months of age among infants Blimey. who were not exclusively breastfed for the first three months of life. So if you were exclusively wow. breastfed for the first three months of life, that mitigated that um, change in delivery. So actually, 
you could look at that and say, oh, it's all about breastfeeding again. Um, and sorry, the headline is you're probably going to feel that a bit through this study because there is a lot about breastfeeding because breastfeeding contributes massively to your microbiome. Having said that, you can also look at it as if you've had a woman who's had a birth that was an unplanned section um, and she was very much not the birth that she was hoping for, but she's managing to exclusively breastfeed. That might be a really, really supportive and lovely piece of information for her to hear, to say, I know that yeah. you didn't get the birth that you had planned, and I that can cause a huge amount of trauma for people. Definitely. It's relevant to know that all of the effort and work you've put into breastfeeding your baby for those first three months of life, exclusively breastfeeding them, has mitigated the change in their microbiome that you know we can make a statement that that will have helped the microbiome of yeah. the infant um so that might be really reassuring for that parent it will be really reassuring yeah and it's that thing where obviously you don't want to fall into the trap of doing the whole oh you had a rotten birth but you got a healthy baby no you definitely know, not and that kind of thing no but i think it can go some way at least to at least helping at a time when they're feeling really vulnerable helping yeah. maybe give them that boost towards you know what there is i am doing my best it is yes, really i'm doing a good job yeah and that yeah that that not everything like is ruined because they didn't get the birth that they wanted you haven't ruined your child's no, outcomes in life you know because i think people can get very yeah. fixated on they had a c-section so now that means they're going to have all these additional risks but actually knowing that yeah. managing to exclusively breastfeed for the first three months will mitigate some of those risks um really would would give them the opportunity to see how they're making a difference to how they're contributing to their child's health yeah um yeah so that's headline two yeah yeah go for it oh i felt like we'd we'd also covered head we felt like we'd almost covered headline four as well then <laughs> oh yes that's true we did we touched on it yeah and there'll be more about that yeah. as well um, carry on what were, were you gonna do three the audience yeah audience is now intrigued as the fact we have our, our list trail um, yes guys yeah. we do actually sometimes have a bit of a script yeah we sometimes Amazing. have a list yeah <laughs> notes especially when it comes to a study that's got 90 what was it 95 publications yeah i've got a list yeah right. so this is interesting so specific <laughs> microbes that impact asthma yes and there are four four particular bacteria that if they have lower levels of in the first three months of life yeah is a strong indicator that they will have a, a more chance of developing asthma yes so this is I've again my mores and less is in that right order i think so yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah they've got low levels of these bacteria in the first three months of life then that predicts yeah. asthma symptoms is... age yeah. three and so this is where yeah and so the four gut bacteria <clears throat> the gynodontitis <laughs> flavor see this is where the licking thing here obviously i was actually oh, just like literally the sowing thing. the seeds oh, of the later come back there. returning to the licking um however this is flavor with a modern <laughs> twist because it's it's without any vowels. Flipper. Flipper. <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so the four bacteria i'm gonna take a running jump you just this. go for it jen uh fecally bacterium Oh, Lachnosphera, oh. Valinella, and Rothia. Great work. That's exactly how I would have done it. Is it? The yeah. question on everybody's lips is, is it how it's actually pronounced? So if you listen, you will hear the very Space Age video. I'm, go I'm going to link to this YouTube video, by the way, which is a yes. summary of the child yeah, yeah. cohort study. It's really good. But just so that we oh, can yeah, hear it's how amazing. it's actually supposed to be said. The bacteria are called Fecalibacterium, Lachnospira, Valinella, and Rothia, tongue-twisting names that have been nicknamed FLVR, or flavor for short. Did you hear that? No, I didn't. You can't hear it. I? I thought it was coming through my headphones. You were pretty darn close. Excellent work. In fact, I think it's pretty much perfect. 
Excellent. Great work. So, um, yeah, so those the, four things, they're new. They're what, sorry? They're, they're newly new. identified. Yeah, newly identified as being predictive uh, of asthma. So that's from this right, study. Okay. They didn't know that they were predictive of asthma. Um, they, no. They predict symptoms like wheeze and positive skin allergy tests yeah. aged three. It's interesting because we're having come from a background of looking at atopy and mm -hmm. family histories of mm. it'd be interesting to know how this then fits into that and whether it's like you know can you can you end up with symptoms like wheeze and positive skin tests yeah because of low levels of these bacteria even if you've not got a family history of atopy or does yeah. the family history of atopy then lead to lower levels? Yeah, for some reason your body's more resistant to these. Or yeah, um, I think that's yeah, work that like, needs to be done around how the different yeah. risk factors play together to produce an individual's yeah. risk of something. But that's the difference between a public health level risk and an individual level risk, isn't it? Because individuals have a number of different factors that will all be interacting to produce the outcome. That's why. Um, people always say, "Oh, they did that to me, and it never did me any harm," you know. Yeah. But but the, <laughs> the 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 point is that your individual risk is not what we're trying to predict. It's about. No. Um, but they're saying that this might be relevant in terms of giving us a marker of infants that might be at higher risk of developing wheeze and skin allergy yeah. and skin skin responses, so potential yeah, well, allergies. I mean that would then give us the opportunity to monitor those infants more carefully um, and perhaps yeah. pick those things up more quickly and maybe yeah. even and probiotics. potential treatments. Right? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, looking yeah. at sort of potentially probiotics, there is more, again, it's something which is still in these early phases, but you do hear of use of probiotics. I know we mentioned it a little bit when looking at the doing our mastitis podcast. Yes. Yeah. Um. And there is definitely so much more that we we don't know yet about mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah. I There's... think one of the tricky things with probiot anything sort of oh yeah or probiotics immediately thinking of like the little yakults and yeah. things and having them orally. I suppose the one thing is like well yeah how how do they do getting through the stomach and stomach acid and things yeah and so yeah quite whether there's work that needs to be done on how to transport them through um, uh, yeah and that work knows? is it being feels done like we're... for sure there's a real field yeah. of probiotics in research right now I know that like for my PhD I'm looking at unsettled infants and I know there's some promising work around probiotics in colic for, for treatment of colic so it's quite interesting anyway um, all of this is definitely, I think if we were to map out the landscape of research in the next 10 years or so, the microbiome will be there for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's bonkers. It feels like we're at a point where, you know, sort of another five years down the line, we'll be talking about this in such a different way because yeah. so much is going to have come up and been developed and things. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So... Back to the headlines then, we've done three, we've done mode of birth, antibiotics in labour, microbes, specific microbes in, impacting asthma, we've touched on feeding method, which is number four, feeding method also impacts microbiome, and this really was everywhere through the study, so that you can see why they've yeah. made it a headline, because it, it really was all over the place, Um. so breastfed babies have higher levels of bacteria, Um. And that that is protective against obesity. So they're yeah. wondering whether this might be the microbiome might be one potential mechanism for the well established link between reduction in an obesity with breastfeeding. Obviously, it will be one part of the answer, but it could potentially be one part of that. Um, yeah. So I'm realising I'm nodding away. I'm like, that's not good for a podcast. I need to actually speak. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> breast milk and the guts microbiome share some of the same bacteria. So these good bacteria are then transferred in breast milk. And the yeah. co-occurrence of um, the 
bacteria in breast milk and in the gut was highest for infants who directly nursed at the breast. So that's interesting Fantastic. as well, as opposed yeah. to expressed breast milk. There's a slight express difference there milk. potentially yeah. in terms of the microbiome. Um, and also they've, they've said that the fact that there's that similarity between breast milk and the gut microbiome might help because if we could study breast milk, we might be able to develop some probiotics that might be able to support. Yeah. Um, well, this ties in that. a lot. I mean, I'm sure it has massive ties with work that um, Dr. Natalie Schenker and Human Milk yes. Foundation yes, are doing at Imperial. And because it's interesting how we understand breast milk so much better now. Yeah. And things like there being particular oleosaccharides in milk that are not digestible but are there for the gut yeah. flora to, yeah. to digest and to use to thrive and things. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, it's a really exciting time because there's going to be so much more we understand. Yes, um, definitely. Up in, yeah. Definitely. And on that breastfeeding differences as well, there's another one here about C. difficile, um, which is a diarrhea-causing bacterium, bacterium um, which is carried by some babies in their gut without symptoms. Okay. Mm. When the gut microbiome... When the gut microbe is unbalanced, this can cause diarrhea and increase risk of chronic atopic illness later in life. Okay, so C. diff bacteria, yeah. they found that C. diff bacteria were present in 22.6% of exclusively breastfed infants, 36% of partially breastfed infants, and 49.6% of exclusively formula-fed infants. Wow. And then what was really interesting as well was that of the breastfed babies who carried it, their gut microbiome generally was more similar to that of a formula-fed baby. So I wonder what is separating out those breastfed babies, that 22.6%, from the other yeah. 78% or whatever that is. That's really interesting. Well, I mean, I'm, I wonder, so I'm guessing... I'm guessing a lot of this was going on parental self-reporting. Yeah, talk about feeding history and things. Um, so they did... Um, sorry, the, the reporting of this. Do you know what? In terms of measurements, I haven't talked about that at all, which you're highlighting a major gap. Um, sorry. No, you're really right. I haven't talked about it. The reason I haven't talked about it, if I'm really honest, is there's so many measures at so many time points so yeah. they've done biological samples of cord blood meconium breast milk urine blood nasal swabs and stools they've done questionnaires which are family history questionnaires maternal stress nutrition child health medications indoor and outdoor environment and they've done home assessments which actually included visual home inspections and dust sampling and then they've also wow. done clinical assessments, which included lung function assessments and skin tests. And a lot of those things they've repeated, they haven't just done once. So yeah. this really is, in terms of the really? data pool, I'm not sure on the breastfeeding data exactly where that comes from. Um, I suspect you're probably right, really? it probably is self-report. But they're following these um, children at multiple time points. So it, it's not like they receive a questionnaire in the post and they tick whether they are or they're not. They're coming into clinic and seeing clinicians and they're gathering some data about what they're doing at that time point. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully it would be slightly more accurate than just, you know, clicking yes. a questionnaire yeah. online. Yeah. Um. But but yeah, sorry, you were actually going to say something about the where where they're gathering the data from. No, no, I was just I mean it was just that thing of thinking about potential ways that yeah you know, sort of and just thinking about previous studies we've looked at as well mm. where you know parental self reporting is always a bit of a I'm thinking especially with the ones with sleep where mm. you know it's sort of sleep and also just something with. Whereas lots of things are easy to measure and to validate. Yeah. Um, unless you were literally going to the house and looking around and checking they've got no bottles or anything. Yeah, yeah. It's like, 
you're you're having to probably go by the report that they are fully breastfeeding and yes, things sometimes. Yeah. But um but yeah. But no, it's interesting so I'm looking through everything and just I know it might be one of the other points that you come to. Mm. Um or yeah, moving to like fact there's a bit of a crossover of factors in the home. Yeah. You can say about how natural green space and pets can mitigate changes the microbiome caused by formula feeding yes so this is and a real formula fed infants message. living yeah. within 500 meters so that's like a quarter of a kilometer yeah of natural green space yeah had a gut microbiome more similar to a breastfed baby yes yes so there is actually but not evidence human-made parks that... they had to be natural green yes. spaces yeah not like a play park that's been you know for children but an actual natural ecosystem like a wood or a forest or a lake or something um and so that's that's headline five is that factors in the home also impact so disinfectants have a harmful impact um and the presence of pets especially dogs might positively impact so sadly, this doesn't mean you're not supposed to clean anymore, which is what I thought that immediately meant. I don't need to clean anymore. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't mean that. Yeah, I, I did find that a bit weird when I was looking into it. Kind of, who, who doesn't clean at least once a week? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's the use of disinfectants once a week, um, right. which is different from detergents. So... Most household yes. stuff is detergent rather than disinfectant. I think we learned the difference between this when we were looking at what kills COVID and what doesn't. It has to be a disinfectant <laughs> yeah. to kill COVID, doesn't it? Um, anyway, not to bring that into it, but um, <laughs> they had higher... So infants living in households where disinfectants were used at least weekly were twice as likely to have higher levels of the bacteria called lacnospirazi. That's definitely not how it's pronounced. At three to four months of age. At three years of age, those same children had a higher body mass index than children who were not exposed to frequent home use of disinfectants as infants. So even at three years, you're still seeing impact from that. Um, Obviously, to be clear, when I'm saying impact, I should have, I'm catching myself here. This is a cohort study. So what we're talking here are correlations. It's not causation they haven't manipulated anything so in order to say causation they'd have to take these children expose half of them to disinfectant and half of them not to randomly allocate them and then measure they haven't done that what they've done is observed what happens (laughs) naturally and then drawn conclusions from that so there is always that caveat of correlation not causation um but it's a very interesting correlation for sure um and then you mentioned green spaces, um, and that's yes. a really important one. So, um, yeah, within 500 metres of natural green space had m- gut microbiome more similar to the breastfed baby. Um, and they wondered that whether that might be because maybe families who walk their dogs might use these natural yeah. areas more often, or maybe pets might bring healthy bacteria into into the home on their fur. Maybe I don't know. So it's, interesting, it's, isn't it? Could could come down to licking again. You know? like, Who knew we were going to like licking so much? Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh dear. Gut fungi. There's something here about gut fungi is important for risk of allergic sensitization to inhaled allergens at five years. So this is really the allergy side of it. And they used a machine yes. learning algorithm and combined fungal, environmental and clinical data to predict with 81% accuracy whether an Blimey. infant would develop inhaled allergies at age five. So that is pretty phenomenal. Um, and they found that antibiotic use, older siblings, breastfeeding status at one year and season and location of birth were the most important other factors outside of... Um, gut fungi yeah so that's interesting and they're even suggesting that there is some link with neurodevelopment this is my in boys most interesting one you know what i'm like i love the neurodevelopment so boy, stuff yeah so boy boys with a gut bacterial composition high in the bacteria bacteria bacteroid 
bacteria in it <laughs> at one year of age had more advanced cognition and language skills one year later. Mm-hmm. And they, they are one of the few bacteria that produce met- metabolites, metabolites, metabolites yeah. called, oh my word, I'm glad you're reading sphingolipids. Sphingolipids, <laughs> which are instrumental for the formation and structure of neurons in the brain. Yeah. They're hoping to continue this, co- follow this cohort to see whether these bacteria can be predictive of neurodevelopmental differences. Yeah, such as autism or ADHD. So it's it's literally saying bacteria in the guts, in the infant's gut, if they have um, a high level of this bacterioidetes at one year, they can predict their language, or they they were associated with different cognition and language skills one year later. And the reason they're proposing for why that might be is because they produce this metabolite, which forms yeah. neurons physically, builds yeah. the brain. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure I'm not the only one who is reading that and thinking Wakefield, because <laughs> wasn't the, this research he did or, or, or tried to do was something yeah. about autism and gut so, bacteria, wasn't no, no, it? That's vaccines. And that's that is vaccines. just pun. Vaccines. Yeah, yeah, but it was looking at the impact of vaccines on the gut flora, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I, I do think, I, to be fair to the researchers, <laughs> child... Oh, yeah, no, 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 I'm not saying, it's just that thing of you kind of end up going, oh, my word, was there a little bit I think, of... Yeah, yeah look, I think it's gr- it sounds like such a big step that it sounds so... Um, unlikely that you would see how those things could possibly impact that um that i do see where you're coming from with that completely but there are very important differences between what wakefield was doing in terms of his methodological work and the conclusions he drew from his research and the um i've never been able to be copied anywhere like there's yeah. real evidence of of um, malpractice, like significant malpractice in his work. That this yeah. is a very well respected, well conducted, well reported piece of research. Yeah. So it, I think yeah, I'm just sort of saying it out loud because the last thing I and so that we can have that conversation. It's a good point. Yeah. The last thing I would want would be anyone else hearing this, thinking Wakefield and going to the wrong point. But the key thing is his research could never be replicated. Yes. Getting the same results he got. Um, and importantly, and I think, they're I'm not guessing saying... this is looking at it from a very different point of view of looking at almost the environmental impact on babies from birth through to a few years old. Yeah, not the impact of just having an injection a single at a year old already. Yeah. yeah, Wakefield was making the claim that vaccines impact this, whereas this child data has absolutely nothing to do with vaccines and we have yeah. no evidence whatsoever that vaccines yeah. have an impact on um the gut microbiome from this data. This is talking about um you know birth birth mode of delivery, um feeding and all of the things we've talked about, environmental yeah. factors that we've talked about already. Um so, you know, the data yeah. that he was trying to suggest that vaccines would have an impact on your gut flora and therefore, you know, impact all of these things, that's the leap that we absolutely don't have. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of differences. But the point is they're not trying to make big statements about, you know, saying that breastfed babies are less likely to have ADHD or birth birth by vaginal delivery is going to give you less likelihood of having autism that's not what they're saying they're not making those leaps no. at all what they're saying is that they've found differences in the gut bacteria that are associated with um cognition and language skills not autism or adhd but cognition and language no. skills they are hoping to follow the cohort to see whether the bacteria can be predictive of neurodevelopmental differences and if they do that might offer us some understanding of the underlying mechanism and brain changes in autism and adhd which might attempt yeah. to give us some help around those those things it's not about 
um, vilifying or saying that parents have caused those problems. But it is about understanding how those problems happen. And I think particularly with ADHD, we always face the criticism that this isn't real, it's all about parenting. And actually work that demonstrates physical differences can be quite helpful from that perspective as well. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. But I mean, look, this is a very much a... And I think the, the thing about cohort studies is they give you some data that you can then springboard off to do yes, other research. No, completely. So this needs well, a look, lot of interesting. further study. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting having looked at the number of um, articles publications, and yeah. publications and things that have already launched from this. Yeah. To then think of that cascade effect of the amount of things that are then going to be happening to review elements that have come out of this study is going to be huge. I mean, absolutely, this could happily keep a huge cohort of research fellows and yes, PhD students yeah, yeah, yeah. going for a long time. And it is, I mean, it's, it's um, the point of these studies is to stimulate research. We've talked about, so we've talked about a lot of this already, but there's a few things that we haven't mentioned. One is the immune system. Yeah. So they no, found, cool. when they looked at meconium, they found there were early indicators of the microbiome and immune development problems with implications for the development of allergies later in life. So, wow, even from meconium, so first yeah, poos. Yes, wow. first poo. So, a lower number of specific molecules in meconium was associated with later abnormalities in key bacterial groups that are known to help the immune system develop and mature in the first year. So, this is obviously important because it might help us to target some early intervention work. Um, and then, yeah. associated with that, they found overgrowth of a specific yeast in the gut now do you want to have a crack at saying that i'll I'll have a crack at that but it it looks a bit like kudria vizevi yeah kudria v yeah kudria vizevi pika pikia (laughs) kudria vizevi it looks a little bit like in the the pikia at least looks a bit like the name of a pokemon it does actually, yeah. <laughs> um, it's associated that one anyway. It's associated with an increased risk of asthma, age five. <coughs> and then this has springboarded some additional research into. So they've done research with mice. Whatever your opinions are on animal studies, mm. um, this is what this is. Um, I did a mice uh, a study in mice, and they showed lung inflammation when the mice were exposed to this yeast. And they also showed that healthy bacteria produced fatty acids that inhibited the yeast growth and had anti-inflammatory properties. So there might even be a suggestion of a possible treatment for asthma there. Oh, my word. um, Which would be so interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I also saw, um, looking down this, there's some interesting things about peanut allergies. Mm -hmm. It was... um, low bacterioids levels so obviously we've mentioned those already but also those with low bacterioid levels were three times more likely to develop a peanut allergy by three age of three and eight times more likely if they were of asian heritage yes yeah which is so interesting that is so interesting looking at the breakdown of actually yeah how do uh how does ethnicity impact on um yeah. on your natural microbiome and also maybe what your your natural diet may be although i'm saying that but then thinking actually no well, peanuts are still going to eat yeah peanuts are a big part of i that's Asian what i find most interesting often, about that yeah. statement is that actually peanuts are a big part of asian cooking yeah so I find that really interesting. There's a lot of stuff here that is just stimulating for further thought, really. Um, yeah. The, um, there was one other one I was going to say about... Oh, back to asthma again. Individual data from more than 2,600 children participating in child showed that antibiotic use in the first 12 months of life was associated with a near doubling of the risk of being diagnosed with asthma by age five. 
Wow. So antibiotics in the first 12 months, if we think of how many infants um, are prescribed antibiotics in the first 12 months, mm. um, a doubling of the risk. So let's remember that's not, um, we're talking about risk ratios versus, yeah. um, you know, that's only a double of the existing risk. So the risk of being diagnosed with asthma age five is not necessarily very high. So it doesn't mean you're. It doesn't mean you've got a one in two chance of developing asthma. It means whatever the risk is of being diagnosed with asthma age five, it's double that risk. So if the risk yeah. is you know five percent, then it's ten percent or ten percent. You know, it doesn't mean. It, yeah. Yeah. So sometimes those, it's interesting those, you mean, those risk things yeah, can be misinterpreted. But it, it is. It's that sort of thing where you then like, well, okay, but what were they being di- given the antibiotics for? And thinking, well, if they were giving antibiotics for a chest infection, yeah. does that indicate there was a weakness there already? Or Yeah, it's, yeah um, that's interesting. I yeah. love things like this because they end up really firing me up because I, I get... It's, it, I quite like these podcasts where we leave you with more... Hopefully, you've similarly <laughs> fired up after listening to us Either and uh, feeling thinking. more like, wow, I want to read more. I want to know more about the relationship between these elements. Yes, hopefully. Um, and then if you're anything like me and aren't very research-minded and then like thinking, well, I hope someone does some research yes. soon that I read. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not a lab technician, so it won't be me. Um, but no. I feel like a lot of lab work needs to come from this. But there's there's some Definitely. really interesting stuff. Oh, there's one more that I haven't said, which is about obesity. The reason I found it interesting... Gosh, I'm so boring. The reason I found it interesting <laughs> was partly because they've used structural equation modelling path analysis, which is a statistical modelling technique. And I realised no one else in the world finds that interesting. But I went away and looked up what that was and read about it and found it very interesting. I won't bore you with it, but basically a way of attempting to map some causality onto correlations using the statistical modelling techniques. And it's sort of similar to... um, a regression modeling if you remember back to your stats where you look at a model and you try and explain variance with a model a yes. statistical model yeah so it's, it's sort of along those lines um, and they wow. used that technique to show a pathway from mode of birth to obesity and atopic illness and it's been that pathway is mediated by the microbiome so they've modelled, so this is a, a, a really broad, big model, which is about mode of birth, one side of mode of birth, yeah. and on the other side they've got obesity and atopic illness, like atopic illness being things like eczema, asthma, allergies, um, hay fever, yeah. things we've talked about already. Um, wow. And that link mediated by the microbiome. So, I mean, blimey, that's... Um, so we've dipped our toes in the shallows. Um, Very much so. And I think... I mean, well, let us know, like I said, if there's any particular elements of the child study you've heard about or been interested in, let us know, because it would be great to be able to um, have some inspiration from you guys about yes. what other elements of this study to look at, um, because we could just do probably about two years' worth of podcasts. Yeah, but let's not. Just have... going through the papers. Should we do something yeah, else? Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. <laughs> We'd do, like, like to mix it up a bit more than that, really. So if you want to get in touch, our Instagram is at IMHV. Um, our Facebook page is the um, slightly unimaginatively titled I Am A Health Visitor. <laughs> and on um, your email, you can contact us by um, typing in I Am A Health Visitor, all one word, at gmail.com. Um, I hope that's been really useful and yeah, we'll be in your ears again very soon, hopefully. Take care for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye.